Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Who are those guys? I'm Galen. And I'm Doug. And we're those movie guys. Bringing movie reviews and previews to the masses since 2007. All right, we're finally back after a two-week hiatus. Today is Monday, October 22nd, 2007. Today on the show, we have four reviews for you. We're going to reviews, review Black Book, the Dutch film by Paul Verhoeven. We're going to review 1408, starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. We're going to review The Hoax, starring Richard Gere. And finally, we have the brand new theatrical release review of Jesse, The Assassination of Jesse James by the cower, coward Robert Ford. We're going to start the show off with our review of Black Book. I have to admit I know nothing about this film. However, since Galen was kind enough to type the blurb for me, I'll be able to fake it. Apparently, Black Book is a Dutch film from director Paul Verhoeven. That tells the story of a Jewish woman who joins the Dutch resistance in World War II. Along the way, she becomes a spy and gets pulled into a perilous plot of intrigue. I unfortunately missed this one, so I'm going to ask you, Galen, should I make it a point to see this, or can I safely forget about it? I'm going to say that... I, I'm going to say you can probably forget about it. If you ever really want to rent a Dutch film, and you've already seen The Vanishing and don't want to see The Vanishing anymore, then, you well, know... I like The Vanishing. Well, yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if, if for I whatever just... reason you want to see a new one, <laughs> then I guess this would be an okay choice. Because it's not a horrible film. I mean, it does have some great cinematography. I mean, they really get the look of World War II all in down. I mean, it, it looks genuine. And it's great to see, you know, the the barricades and it, the the how the buildings that, where the Nazis are turned into quasi fortresses and it it gives it a definite feel of an occupied nation you know you get that sense from it and it's really powerful in creating that almost uh, 1984 type of environment you know uh, with an oppressive regime similar to what we got in um, the uh, the German film, help me out here, I'm drawing a blank, the the, the East German with the Stasi. Oh, uh, The Lives of Others. Thank you, The Lives of Others. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were headed at first. Yeah, well, so it, it really has a great look to it. Yeah, another positive is I think it has some terrific editing. I mean, there's some great montage scenes with the, uh, the, um, it it cuts from the Nazis, they kill this group of Jews, and it keeps cutting rapidly, showing them rifling through their belongings of the corpses, and it's just a really powerful scene done through montage and editing, and I, I really like that, and there are a few scenes like that in the film. You know, I also think there are pretty strong performances from the lead actors and actresses. I thought in particular... Grease von Houten was 
very strong in her role as as Rachel Stein, and um, I, I so I mean th- there's a lot of good going on. I mean I I thought also it was interesting how the movie because the first half of it is very much Rachel Stein's in this resistance movement against the Nazis and she's fighting them and she's a spy going undercover to exploit them. Well, then at the end, it kind of turns around, and after the war is over, she is thought to be a traitor to the Resistance. So she gets mistreated by the leaders of the Resistance. And I I thought it was interesting how, you know, you saw the um, the abuses that the, the Resistance did to their own people after the war was over, and, you know, they... A Canadian officer makes the point, you know, you're as bad as the Nazis. And uh, it, it was an interesting thing, because that's a part of the war you never really see, but it did happen. I mean, it, you saw the pianist, correct? Yeah. And remember, at the end of that, it's a very similar situation where the Russians, you know, are capturing the Nazis and putting them in the tiny little fences, you know, and... um basically caging them like animals and it's interesting to see that you know to see that you know the the allies weren't exactly guiltless you know after the war was over but uh so that's what i liked but then i have to get to the problems which there's one that covers the whole movie and that's the music is cheesy and i i don't understand why this is because uh, the the uh the vanishing had very bizarre music too and it was like the only thing of the film we didn't like if i recall yeah and uh and this one does as well you know and i'm honestly this is the only other dutch movie i've ever seen so i can't pretend to be an expert on dutch cinema i don't know if this music is typical of the cinema, or it's just a coincidence, but it just, it's very bizarre, and I don't think it suits the film at all. But my main problem is that the final act of the film, the third act, is just completely, it, it, it's so contrived, it, it doesn't feel authentic at all. I mean, how they go about discrediting her and making her, the resistance believe she's a traitor. I just, I don't believe, I don't understand why the Nazis would do that because they, they plan to kill her immediately afterwards. So why would you discredit her as a traitor? I mean, because all that's going to do is make the resistance want to kill her. Well, if you're going to kill her anyways, what's the point? It It didn't make any sense. Now, of course, she ends up escaping, which I don't think is giving anything away. And uh, she's not killed, so then that gives them the third act with the resistance chasing her. But I think it was mainly just a plot point, and I, I I thought it was kind of weak, you know. And and also other things like there's a scene where the Germans execute someone after the war is over, and they claim they they claim that they had the right even after the war was over, to carry out execution orders on their own soldiers, and I really, really doubt that. I, I just don't think that a conquer, especially since the Germans con- surrendered unconditionally, you know, I, I don't think that they would have had the right to execute their their troops. 
I really doubt that. But I don't know. I'm not an expert on World War II history, so maybe someone can correct me. But And there are also a string of coincidences at the end, too, that just... It, it's mainly that third act where things fall apart, and I it was because they wanted to show the other side of her. You know, she was persecuted by the Nazis, and then afterwards she gets persecuted by the Dutch. You know, and I think that's an interesting thing to do, but they just they had to rely on contrivances in order to accomplish it, so it doesn't feel authentic. But by and large, though, I, I still think it's a pretty good movie. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. You know, a little better than average, but still nothing you have to rush to see. It's just a slight recommendation. That's right. Well, here we are again, yet another psychological horror movie, very much in the style of The Ring and The Grudge. Just like those films, 1408 looked very much like it could be hit or miss. The upside, the film stars John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. The downside, the film stars John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. All kidding aside about the up-and-down careers of the lead actors, the film did look like it could have some promise and be an intelligent horror film, much like The Ring and The Descent. I unfortunately was unable to see this movie since I was forced to get some films for grad school on Netflix instead. But you saw it, Doug, so tell me what you think. Intelligent thriller or another in a long line of lame PG-13 horror movies? Well, I might not call it an intelligent thriller, but it certainly has its good moments. It's not as good as The Descent or The Ring, but it's certainly better than garbage like The Grudge. Mm -hmm. So as with any good review, I'll start with the good stuff before I tackle the bad. Okay. I think the mm. best part of the film is that it's just fun to watch. It kind of keeps you guessing. You know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, who would after a man who thinks he knows all about paranormal enters this room of pure evil? Mm. It does keep you guessing. And the whole premise of the movie actually reminds me of an episode, a good episode, of The Twilight Zone. Oh, really? Yeah. Which and episode? I'm just saying it could have been. Oh, oh I see. Oh, okay. Zone. I'm not saying it, it mimics an episode. I, yeah, I, I thought you were saying it was like a takeoff. Okay. But yeah, it, it's as if it could have been one of the episodes of The Twilight Zone. You know, it's a, a very... Well, the whole movie's based off a short story that's written by Stephen King. And, right. You know, the, the movie portrays that. It's not like it spans a whole long time span. It's basically one night in a hotel room. <clears throat> and I think as far as the performances go, with John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson, they're pretty good. John Cusack ascent especially. I think had you put anybody else in this film you might have become very bored. I think he does a great job making bringing the character of Mike Eslin to life. And, you know, I've heard a lot of criticisms that he, this movie is beneath him, but I'm trying to look at it in a positive way where because of a talented actor like John Cusack, it helps the film. Well, and the movie's beneath and, him. What the fuck? I mean, what has John Cusack done since High Fidelity that has been anything uh, Maybe that's what those reviewers were thinking about. 
I mean, I Fidelity, he was great in that, but I don't, I don't remember him doing it. I mean, Must Love Dogs, I think he was in, and that certainly isn't... I wouldn't call that a high art film. But I don't think I'd call this a high art film either, but he does a good job in this. Samuel L. Jackson is more disappointing, only because he's underused. He's He does well in this. I like his character, but he's really only in it for about maybe 10 minutes to try and convince John Cusack not to stay in this room. Yeah. And, and, you know, had he played a bigger part in the movie, I think it, the whole movie would have benefited from it. But as it is, he just had a small part. I guess you could say he has a, a part later in the film towards the end, but it's more, I'll get to that later. Okay. But anyways, uh, the movie is good. Like I said, it's fun to watch. I think it's cool that this whole movie is kind of a throwback to old-fashioned horror. You know, movies like Psycho, while this might not be as good as it, it's it kind of reminds me of those movies. It's not just like a, a pornographic, blood-slashing you know, monster fest like so many horror movies are turning into yeah. these days. It's course a psychological thriller but it's even kind of hitchcockian that the whole movie or at least 90 percent of it takes place in one room so you know those are the good things where the movie starts to falter is in the second half because things start to get a little cliched and very far-fetched one thing you never like to see in any psychological thriller, or, or mostly in any movie, is kind of that flip-out scene where everything kind of goes crazy. You know, the, the character almost goes mad and psycho, and, and it's usually shot in a very cliched yeah. manner, and that, that definitely happens in here. That, that flip-out scene is and I think we could have done without it. <laughs> I also don't like... There's a scene where when he is trapped in the room, he uses his laptop to try and contact his now ex-wife through a video conversation. And I thought it was really, really stupid that like a, a doppelganger of sorts appears on the laptop and takes over as him and you know tells her, oh, everything's fine and, and ends the conversation. Yeah, and, and it's at that point where things get even more far-fetched. So, I find it as a negative. I mean, there's so many times some of these things you're, you know, they, my response is, you know, like that could actually happen. Yeah. Well, and that's but, the thing, because even when you're dealing with, like, a fantasy or a horror film, you still have to follow certain rules of the world, you know? Because, I right. mean, you know, and some people might be saying, oh, well, it's like a possessed room, it's not supposed to be realistic. It's like, well, yeah, but at the same time, it has to it has to obey the own rules that it sets up. And if it, if it starts to fudge on that, then it, it seems fake. Right, because up until these points, the movie isn't that far-fetched. And I, I think that's why these, some of these, you know, over-dramatic scenes are a little too much to handle. They don't work. Right. 
Uh, some of the other plot devices, like with his daughter, seem like they're a little forced. It seems now it's all getting to be a cliche that you have to have like a, a creepy little girl. Yeah. And all these psychological thrillers. And she's used as, you know, kind of a, a plot device with the main character, Mike Enslin, trying to come to terms with losing his daughter to a terminal illness. And I guess it's not as bad as I've seen in some films, but at the same time, there's other parts that just, you know, scream cheap horror movie. Yeah. Just because the way it's filmed, the way the little girl's used. Um, but overall, I'd say it's a good movie. I would mildly recommend it, kind of like what you said with Black Book. You know, it's nothing innovative. It's nothing groundbreaking. But it is fun, especially the first half. The first half is, you know, pretty suspenseful, and it definitely keeps you entertained. It's the second half that kind of falters a bit. The ending's not too bad. I won't give anything away, but you you certainly don't see some of the, the plot twists right at the end, and it, it is satisfying enough. So would you give Black Book three or three and a half? Three and a half. Three and a half. Well, that's what I'm also giving 14 <clears throat> I mildly you. recommend it. It's definitely like a fun episode of The Twilight Zone, and it's a it's a nice, refreshing throwback to the old-fashioned horror of days ago. And now we will review the feature release of The Assassination of Jesse James. It's looking like Westerns may be making more of a revival, with series like the unfortunately canceled Deadwood on TV and the recent 310 to Yuma. And now, with The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Starring Brad Pitt as the titular outlaw and Casey Affleck as the equally titular coward, the film tells the story of how Jesse James met his killer and what led to Robert Ford's betrayal. Now, I admit to not knowing much about this film, damn near nothing at all, <laughs> but it did look promising the little I've seen. So I'll ask you, Galen, is it as good as 310 to Yuma? Can we officially herald in a Western renaissance? Well, I'm going to have to answer no to the first question. It's not nearly as good as 310 to Yuma. Isn't hard to believe. Three Ten to Yuma was being fantastic. Yes, and uh, a five star movie from both of us. And um, the uh, the second question: it, Does this can we herald in a, a, a Western Renaissance? I think maybe yes. I I think that there are enough in production that I think we may be going towards that. I think it's interesting that. The westerns we're getting are a lot of them are about like the death of the west i mean certainly that's what deadwood is about um 310 to yuma not so much but the assassination of jesse james is is partially about that and i i think first of all what i'd have to start with is the beautiful cinematography i i don't think it's exaggeration at all to say that Nearly every single frame of this film you could turn into a picture to hang on your wall and it'd be gorgeous. I mean, it's it's literally every frame of the film is just beautiful to look at. I mean, it has 
apart from the beautiful landscapes and, and sky shots that you get in any West Western film, there's also these just really unique techniques that they use. Like they use a, a fishbowl type of technique where the, the, they probably rub Vaseline or something on the perimeter of the lens to get like, it's fuzzy all around, but the center is clear, you know, and it, it just has this amazing effect. You know, it, it, it gives it almost a nostalgic type of look like, you know, and, and particularly since the film, part of what it's about is pop culture of the 1880s. I mean, Jesse James is very much a guy who's falling prey to the same sort of paparazzi and media problems, the, the fandom sort of problems that people like Britney Spears are falling into today. And, uh... The effect of that fishbowl, I mean, it gives it, like, you're looking in a fishbowl, you're staring at Jesse James, just like everyone else's. And, I mean, I think that's amazing. You know, and also, uh, it, it, it also kind of uh, emphasizes the whole ephemerality of the, the uh, celebrity. So I, I think that's amazing. I, I think the other element that you have to talk about and something that the assassination of Jesse James gets absolutely right is the performances. Brad Pitt is very strong as Jesse James. You know, this outlaw is just kind of sick of being Jesse James. I mean, you, you get this sense that he wants to, he would be anyone else if he could, but, you know, he can't escape from who he is, particularly when he has a bounty on his head and everyone's after him, both fans and uh, Pinkertons. And uh, he, he just really, I mean, there, there's a scene at the end when he is about to be killed where he just sets down his guns. And, you know, you know he knows that he's going to be shot and he's just sick of it, you know, and he's just ready to die because it's the only way out for him at this point. And there's just a look of resignation on his face and acceptance. And it's just, it's amazing because it's not really, there's... There is a lot, a fair amount of dialogue in the film, but it's not, it's not that obtrusive. I, they really, the director really trusts the actor to, uh, trusts the actors to use their, their, their facial expressions and their eyes and their gestures and their body language to convey their emotion. And I would think you he, say, oh, go ahead. Would you say Brad Pitt? would have made your outlaw top five outlaw list a few weeks ago. I don't think so. I mean, he, it's a fantastic performance, but I mean, we're getting Jesse James at the point that he's sick of being an outlaw, you know? So he's just kind of a tired, beaten up man at this point. <laughs> I, he's not, he's not much of an outlaw anymore. Although he still does outlaw things. I mean, he still kills people. He's still, he robs one train during the film, but He's he's tired of it. He's tired of being the badass at this point. But it's it's definitely a strong performance. Now, although as great as he is, I think Casey Affleck as Robert Ford is award worthy. And I I really as of now, I and maybe you'll correct me because I might be forgetting a performance, but I think he would be my front runner for best actor so far. 
because he's just it's fantastic that he's talking about body language and gesture robert ford says very little in the film but he just looks beaten up i mean his he he just he avoids eye contact with everyone including the camera and his just how he carries his body you get the sense of this man who's just always been a loser for lack of a better word or a man who like has never been anybody and never will be anybody and he sees his only chance of um becoming somebody at first is to become the protege of jesse james and then to try to emulate jesse james almost in like the film all about eve where an understudy tries to become the um the the actress and then you know finally he sees as the only way he can achieve fame is by killing Jesse James. So it's it's really a fantastic performance, and it, it it's amazing how good it is. It it truly is. I just I can't say enough good about how good Casey Affleck is in this film, especially since how much we both hated him in Ocean's Thirteen. So I I strongly recommend seeing the film for that reason and for the cinematography now there are a couple of problems though first of all the movie is very deliberately paced i mean first of all it's two hours and 40 minutes long so yikes yeah it's 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 a long film and it's it's like i, I don't want to say it's slow paced but it's very deliberately paced i mean there's not a lot of going on in in a lot of the film other than the the uh the visuals and and the dialogue and and you know that's fine but i can it would be a difficult film to watch very often just for the fact that it is it, it's it's a long film there's no getting you need around to be that. in a certain kind of mood for it yeah it's long and it feels long. And I mean, contributing to that too is another thing that I don't know if I'd call it a problem, but it is an issue. And that is that um, the musical score is, I think, a bit too understated. There's very little music in the whole film. And when it pops up, it's so subtle, you almost don't even hear it. And That's I think probably the first time you'll ever use that as a criticism. Yeah, I know, I know, but <laughs> I think it actually. I think the lack of of a uh, soundtrack actually contributes to it being slower paced. So that's why I I think it is a problem. But all in all, though, it is a really good film. It it just it's a little bit slower pace so it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea i mean if you if you think if you can take a two hour and 40 minute western that's definitely in the elegiac mode i mean it's not like 310 to yuma where people are shooting at each other and chasing each other around it's there there's not a lot of action in this film you know so keep that in mind but i i personally would highly recommend it i'm going to give it a four out of five it's not bad It seems that Richard Gere had disappeared from the face of the earth. 
Perhaps he reached Nirvana with the Dalai Lama, but for whatever reason, he hasn't appeared in a film in a long time. Despite his rocky track record with things like Officer and the Gentleman, we were still interested in seeing his newest film, The Hoax, co-starring Alfred Molina, simply because it looked to be a fascinating and humorous story based on a real writer who swindled a publishing house out of over a million dollars by pretending to be writing a Howard Hughes-authorized autobiography. Well, we never got to see the hoax in theaters, but now that's on DVD, we have. So I'd like to know, Doug, what was it worth the wait? Well, again, this one was a tough one to rate, because I was really, really waiting for this film. If you remember, Galen, I kept asking you and asking you, when's this releasing? When's this yeah. releasing? I'd seen a preview for it, almost like a year before its release, and we ended up never getting it in any of our theaters, because our theaters suck here in Altoona. Yeah, so do ours here in College Station, Texas. But I don't know if I'd say it was worth the wait. It's not a bad film, certainly, mm -hmm. but I don't think I would, again, I don't think I would run right out and, and see this. Now, first of all, let me start off by saying I, I'm not incredibly familiar with the real Clifford Irving. I mean, of course, I know I knew what the story was that he had tried to write the autobiography of Howard Hughes and that it all was a big fake. That's more than but I knew. <laughs> aside from that, and, and that I had only known from prepping for the film. I, mean, oh, I, didn't, I see. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really know who Clifford Irving was or... or so, you know, I don't know what to believe, whether the events in this movie are, are what's true and what was just taken for dramatic effect. Right. But again, I'll start with the good. I think the performances are a very strong point. I definitely love the acting by Richard Gere. I'm certainly not a Richard Gere fan, yeah. but I thought he was pretty good in this movie, and I really, really liked Alfred Molina. I... I'm really only familiar with his work as Dr. Octopus in the second Spider-Man. So often just a supporting character. But I think he does a great job supporting Richard Gere in this movie. In fact, I think I like Alfred Molina a little better. If I had to criticize Richard Gere, I would say that you don't really connect with his character. You're always a little distant. Uh -huh. But... Still, fine performances from all of the cast. Even Hope Davis and Marsha Gay Harden, they were all good. Stanley Tucci was good for the, the supporting roles that they had. I thought it was an interesting plot, and, and it was at times even funny to see how Clifford and Dick would kind of bend the truth or, in most cases, make up stories to try and convince these publishers that what he's doing is for real, in fact, not a hoax. And I think the movie does pick up in the second half a little bit until some scenes out we'll get into later. I'm sure you'll probably criticize what I'm thinking of, too, but we'll save that for, for later. Okay. So, you know, those are the good points. As far as the, the direction, the direction's good. I think the pacing is good. The rest of it, though, it is not so good. Is there any comments you'd like to make on the good? Yes, I, I, I mean, you, you've 
for a lot large part you um uh covered what I was thinking. I I mean I too thought that the performances were good. I mean Alfred Molina is fine. I I personally think that Richard Gere was better, but um I think they both give strong performances. I I don't think either one is fantastic, but definitely serviceable. And uh, particularly Gear, I mean, once Gear starts, uh, once uh, Clifford Irving begins to believe that he actually is Howard Hughes, I think that the performance gets a little better. I would certainly agree. Yeah, and I I think it gets a lot more interesting, let's say. I mean, I... The only reason I'm a little less enthusiastic about their performances than you seem to be is just because I think they're not particularly interesting roles, which is odd because, I mean, usually con men are among the most interesting roles to see portrayed on film. I mean, just look at Matchstick Men, which was fantastic with uh, Nicolas Cage. And usually you can get... Usually con men are fascinating to spend time with, but... I found Clifford Irving and Dick Susskind kind of boring for the most part. I mean, they, yeah, they had fabricated these fantastic lies, but so what? You know, it, 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 they didn't really seem to have a whole lot of interesting depth as characters. Like I said, right. until Irving begins to, like, get so involved in the lies that he starts to believe he is Howard Hughes, or or at least he starts to take on the uh, persona and idiosyncrasies of Howard Hughes. Right, and I think that's an interesting point, how in the second half, once the movie picks up, you know, he it almost turns into a movie about a man's obsession. Yeah. You know, he, he's convinced himself that at first, he's working with Howard Hughes, even though he's never spoken with him. And further into the movie, like you said, it's almost like he is Howard Hughes. Yeah. I, I mean, so I, I definitely... I, I think that there are strong points there. And I, I think there are some interesting direct directorial decisions, like with uh, how they show the fabrications and things like that. And I, I think that's interesting, but not excessively so. Um, I think that's pretty much all the good I have. So did you want to get started on the bad, or did you want me to start? Um, no, go ahead and start in on the bad. I'll follow in this time. Okay. For one thing, I didn't understand why they had the Vietnam War protest footage in the film. I mean... It kind of makes sense at the end when you find out how, like, the Richard Nixon thing becomes involved. And I know that's kind of the point of the... Because that is part of the true story, but it seems kind of tacked on. And I I don't think it needs to be about bringing down a corrupt Richard Nixon. Right, I agree. I think sometimes a lot of those scenes were just... I don't know if I want to use the word cliche, but it seems more and more it's like films are considered high art when they use old video footage. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, though, it it tends to give authenticity, and it's like like you were saying. I think the film's the most interesting whenever it is about Richard or uh, Clifford Irving's obsession with Howard Hughes and and 
with perpetrating this perfect lie. And right. uh, whenever it gets into the elements of like the uh, whole tearing down the White House and Richard Nixon and the corruption in the administration, it's just not that interesting. So, I, I mean, that's a problem. I also think that the love affair is really unnecessary. I, I certainly agree with you on that. Yeah, I, I mean, at first I'm like, okay, well, it's a movie about deception, so it, it could tie in thematically, but I don't think it ever does, because ultimately... It's not really about deception. It's about obsession. I mean, I think that's right. what it becomes. And uh, so the the love affair just isn't necessary. I'm not sure why they put it in the film. It mainly seems it's just a plot device because then she ends up getting captured. Yeah. When she's trying to open up the Swiss account. But even then, it, that, that subplot just kind of stops. You know, you, you see at the end of the movie, she gets jail time for it as being a part of this, but right. it, it really never went anywhere. It was completely unnecessary. Yeah, and once again, I mean, we don't know a whole lot about the true story, so maybe he did have an affair in real life, and they wanted right. to include that. But, I mean, whenever you're making a movie, you, you don't put everything in. You you have to make artistic decisions, and... Um, I I guess the affair was placed in as a means of connecting, because towards the end when they finally exposed Clifford Irving, you know, she's on camera saying, oh, well, Clifford was with me. There was no way he could have been talking to Howard Hughes. Yeah. But in, but even with that point, it, it, it just didn't work in the film. It seemed like that was a, almost a forced issue. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I just, I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, what what did you have to add? I frankly, and again, like you said, I didn't don't know the the true history here. I didn't think enough really had happened to Clifford Irving to really coerce him to go to such measures to screw a company. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I'm sure, and I don't know the writing <laughs> business, but I'm sure your your drafts and ideas get turned down by publishers all the time. And oh, yeah, and you get, get fucked over all the time, too, yeah. Right, I, I would imagine it's more of a natural thing, and yet it happens to this man. I didn't buy that his ego was enough that you know, he would go to these sort of measures to you know, infiltrating Library of Congress and stuff to... to take down a company that screwed him over. Now, See, though, I guess... Go ahead. See, I, I guess I had a different reading of it than you did because I didn't think he was doing this to screw over the company. I, I thought he was doing it, first of all, for the money, but I think more so for the fame. I mean, I think he's someone who was obsessed with the limelight. And he thought that... Because, I mean, he never really planned to bring down the company by doing this. He thought that they would get away with publishing this book and that Howard Hughes was such a recluse that it would be published and he wouldn't even know about it and that right. that he would be rich and famous from it. So I don't think he was trying to screw the com company out of any sort of vindictiveness. I mean, although he was bitter towards the company, I think mainly he was doing it because of his own delusions of grandeur. I guess. I, I can buy that. Hmm. But, 
I, I still thought that some of the extremes they went to to get information on well, yeah. Howard Hughes were a little far-fetched. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The library, not, not the Library of Congress so much, but the Pentagon. Yeah, that, that was a stretch. Sorry. And I don't yeah. know, I mean, once again, maybe he did it, but, you know, whether they did or not, you have to make yeah, it believable. I, I just don't think anybody's walking into the Pentagon. Yeah, well, maybe in the 70s. I mean, it was a little more lax. Maybe. But well, I, I had a, a couple other problems, too. I didn't like, toward the end, you know, when he becomes so obsessed that he ends up abusing drugs and has these hallucinations with that FBI dude. I, I, he, he abused drugs? Well, there's a scene where he, I don't know if they fall out of his pocket or fall out of, I think they fall out of his coat pocket. It's like a bottle of pills. Yeah. Oh. And that's, you know, Alfred Molina's character, Dick, kind of just looks at them. I don't think he, he makes mention of them, but you know, the, those pills are kind of what I read into why he starts hallucinating. Yeah, see, I, I missed the pills somehow. I, I just thought he was hallucinating because I thought he had become so obsessed that he had just started going crazy. See, I, I think had they not shown the pills, it would have been a stronger movie. Yeah, maybe that's why I thought it was stronger, is because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. I, I don't know. The movie doesn't seem to dwell on him taking these drugs, but no. I certainly saw what I saw, unless maybe I was on those drugs. Who maybe. Knows, but, but yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was simply just a case of his delusions of grandeur once again. You know, he has this obsession in being famous and important, and what better way of being important than taking down Nixon through Intertel, you know? And uh, so that's why I thought he was doing it, but... Well, possibly, and and maybe, but I still, I don't know, I, I related it to the drugs, so... Yeah, well, like I said, I didn't see the drugs, but you're probably right if they were there. Well, also cliched, I thought, too, were some of the use of the flashbacks. It seemed every time anything was explained contributing to this plot, they used flashbacks, and sometimes they were clever. Sometimes, like in the the scene where Richard Gere is like, trying to explain his meeting with Howard Hughes, uh -huh. you know, they they use flashbacks of events that happened in their life, and he kind of twists it into the meeting of Howard Hughes. And, and I have to say, I like that. Yeah. There were other times where they were just you know a flashback of something earlier in the movie, and it's yeah those flashbacks aren't needed. Yeah, uh, I think in a way they're insulting to the viewer, you know. We're not smart enough to remember what happened. We need to show it to you. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. I, I thought at first you were talking about the the construction of the fabrications, and I, I did yeah. like those, but yeah, you're I right. Too. I did like that, but I'm saying some of the <laughs> other ones. It's almost like the director liked it so much, too, that he thought he would continue them even though they weren't necessary. You're right. Yeah, I, I think we're pretty much in agreement here. Was there any final thoughts you wanted to add? No, I mean, it's a well-made movie with good performances. It just could have been a little tighter, I think. Yeah, there are some problems. So what are you going to give the hoax? I'm going to give it three stars. 
I'm going to give it a three as well, so we're pretty much in dead agreement. Okay, well, we're almost done for this week, and before we get on to the coming soon, we'd like to apologize for taking our two-week hiatus, but stuff came up first with me with grad school, and I couldn't do it the first week, and then the second week, Doug had a conflict with work, so we basically had to be lazy for two weeks. But but uh, we're back now, and hopefully we, we certainly plan to continue to do it every week, and uh, hopefully we can keep on that schedule from now on. If we have to miss a week, hopefully it's only one week, and then we'd be back. Right, right. Hopefully not two in a row. So, anyways, this week coming up, uh, DVD releases, we have Mr. Brooks starring Kevin Costner and William Hurt. Uh, that's probably what we'll review, right? Yes, I. that's going to be our DVD review. We're also hoping to review Gone Baby Gone or uh, Michael Clayton, possibly both, um, but we'll see about that. Uh, also on DVD this week, we have Meet the Robinsons coming up. And that's the animated movie that looked like it was awful. <laughs> and, uh, which I know doesn't narrow it down at this point. But you know. uh, then we have Hostel Part 2, which I'm not even going to dignify with talking about further. Um, and that's pretty much it coming on DVD. It's not a huge week, but a few things. And then... Coming out in theaters this Friday, we have Dan in Real Life, starring uh, Steve Carell. is kind of like a, uh, a Dave Barry sort of columnist. And then we have Saw 4, which, once again, being a torture snuff film, I'm not going to dignify by talking about. And um, that's pretty much it releasing this week, which is why we're probably going to be reviewing... Uh, Gone Baby Gone or Michael Clayton instead, since those are older releases that we haven't gotten a chance to get to since we took two weeks off. We thought we'd catch up with those, because in two weeks we'll be getting American Gangster. But that that's what's coming up, and it's not a huge week, but, you know, we'll try to make do and have a show for you again next week. Okay, that's all for today's show. If you would like to review any of the ratings that we gave the movies that we covered today, please visit thosemovieguys.blogspot.com. There you can find more in-depth reviews, our star ratings, as well as links to items that we may have covered in the show. Plus, you can subscribe to our feed. Also, you can visit Google Groups at groups.google.com. When you're there, search for Those Movie Guys. You can post a message to our forums. And you can also email us at thosemovieguys at gmail.com. It's thosemovieguys at gmail.com. We look forward to any feedback that you can give us about why we're retarded. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.